0: If you had asked me, do I love Jesus? I would not have known how to answer. It was about 20 years ago in Nashville, Tennessee. I had come down for a friend's ordination and we were debating the importance of the Reformed Doctrine of Justification over a beautiful, wonderful bottle of something from a place called Isla. And Hans Beyer had just left me, of all people, speechless. He said this, When I was young, growing up in germany i could have explained to you how i was justified by faith alone but had you asked me if i loved jesus i would not have known how to answer you see it's very possible to have really good theology to know your bible to be involved in church to go through all of the routine and yet not really love god what about you do you love god Um, well, you know, Greg, I I try to love him, but I'm not very consistent. And that's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking about your religious performance. I'm asking when you think of Jesus and when you think of God, your Father, does anything inside of you move? Does it draw you? Uh, Is your heart tender toward him? Do you have any affection for your Savior? Do you love him? You know, maybe you're sitting here thinking, gosh, you know, I don't know where I am with God. And maybe your relationship with God, it's just not where you want it to be. Maybe you don't really have a lot of love for God. At the beginning of a new year, it's a good time to sort of look inside and see, where is my heart? Is it tender toward God or is it hard? Do I want to change? Do I want to be filled with love for Jesus? Do I want to love God more? Maybe I don't know how to do that. How do you actually change how you feel? Nobody has power over what's going on inside their heart, their their affections, their their feelings. Maybe you're not sure how to change. And if that's where you are, then I believe Jesus is going to speak to you very directly this morning from a passage in the 7th chapter of Luke in which Jesus interacts with a woman, a sinful woman, we are told. It's Luke chapter 7, because here he tells us how to actually love God, and it is a very counterintuitive answer, and it doesn't involve trying harder or doing better. It's, it's, it's really remarkable what he says. It's the exact opposite of what we assume in church and religious culture. This is the seventh chapter of the gospel according to Luke, beginning in verse 36. Here, the word of Christ Now, one of the Pharisees, it's the religious leaders, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And then a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who it is that's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is Jesus saying here? What is this message he has for us? First, he's saying that this woman is showing you a picture of what true and undiluted love for me looks like. You know, who was this woman? What we know is that she was a woman who had lived a sinful life in the town. That probably meant some kind of sexual sin. Uh, You know, maybe she was, uh, you know... uh, uh, walking the streets, you know, selling herself to other people. Maybe she was a divorcee who did what you often had to do in the ancient world. If you were a divorced woman who had no family to take you back and who had no one to take you in, you did whatever you had to do in order to get enough food to feed your children and feed yourself. Uh, and, and so you can imagine what it would be like for her entering a Pharisee's house. I mean, this is, like, this is like the Taliban. The Pharisees, you know, don't think of them as just, you know, happy old guys with beards. They were the religious extremists. They were the fundamentalist of the fundamentalists. They were the, the way far right wing. They were the ones who didn't really believe that they had much sin to, that needed forgiving. They believed themselves righteous. They had a million and a half rules and they looked down upon anyone who broke those rules who didn't follow their traditions. And can you imagine the weight of shame and humiliation a woman who, who, who they all know who she is. Probably half of them have used her services at some point. She's got a reputation. She is the big 800-pound ball of shame walking in to the Taliban house. And they're all reclined around a dinner table eating. And none of them's going to make eye contact with her. She's a shameful woman. But she sits down behind Jesus, who would have been reclining, you know, on his side, eating at the table. And behind him are his feet. And she begins, you know, weeping over his feet and, and wiping them with her hair. And then she takes this little flask of perfume and she breaks it. But what was that flask of perfume? That flask of perfume, we know archaeologically, we know historically what this was. It was not, you know, a big jar of something from, you know, the the, the first floor front counter at Dillard's that she just kind of smashed the top off and dumped. This was extremely expensive. This was her life savings. This is the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars today to have the tiniest little vial of this that would be strapped around her neck just below her adam's apple and it would have a tiny hole in the top there was no way to get the perfume out of it because they encased it in this thing and then put a tiny little pinhole in it that would not allow the surface tension would not allow the liquid to escape but only the aroma and for her profession or her lifestyle this would have been absolutely essential because human bodies before penicillin before antifungal agents, before modern hygiene, before you know antibiotics, uh, they were pretty disgusting. Uh, the smells, the rashes, the boils, the, the, it would have been very, very difficult to even get close to another human being. And this vial is what enabled her to do it because what she would smell was the very potent aroma of her own perfume always just below her chin, wafting up, uh, masking. The smells around her. This little vial was the only leverage this woman had in life. It was her life savings. It was her future. It was her career. It was her lifetime of earnings. It was also bound up with her shame and her sin, her entire future, and she takes the only leverage she has in this life, her, her career, her future, her sin, her shame, her wealth, her security, and she snaps it in two and dumps all of that on the feet of Jesus. She dumps her shame on Jesus. She pours her future on Jesus. She pours her only leverage, her only life, her only career, she gives him all of her earnings, past, present, and future, and Jesus is saying, this is pure, undiluted love. She is throwing away her future, and she has never been happier in her life. She is crying tears of joy out of love and affection for Jesus. And Simon, the Pharisee, he doesn't have this kind of love. He's sitting there criticizing the woman. This is a sinful woman. And he's sitting there criticizing Jesus. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would know that this is a wicked, evil, demonic, shame-filled woman. And he wouldn't let her near him. And Jesus calls him out on it. There were certain things you did for guests in the ancient world. First of all, everybody walked on dirty, muddy streets that were also frequented by camels and and donkeys and they left things not just sand and so your feet when you got to a house would be filthy with all kinds of filth and the first thing that should be done is they should snap their fingers and the servants should come out and they should wash your feet and jesus says simon you didn't even offer me that basic level of respect that you would any other guest that walks into your house and you didn't pour oil on my head and anoint me with blessing You didn't even give me a kiss. That was the handshake. That was the hug. Simon, you do not love the Son of God. You have no love for God at all. But this woman, with her kisses, with her weeping, with her tears, that's what you're lacking, Simon, to to gain that. Jesus is saying, in order to truly be moved with love for him and love for his Father, something is... Aesthetic has to happen inside of you. If you're here today and the thought of Jesus just does nothing at all, you're just hard as a rock, understand something aesthetic has to change. Aesthetics, it's the science of beauty. It involves what you desire, what you long for, what you're drawn to, what captures your heart, what captivates your imagination. It's what you consider a beautiful thing. You see, this woman, something aesthetic had happened to her. There was something that she found immensely beautiful. She had been likely with a different man every week, maybe every night, and each night she would have been thinking, maybe this will be the man who truly will love me. Maybe this is the one who will whisk me away in the morning. He'll still be here next week. Maybe this is the one who's going to want to take me into his home and embrace me. Maybe this will be the first man who has truly loved me. And every single morning after morning, week after week, she would hit another deeper level of rejection, of hopelessness, of despair of one who has never been loved. And then she heard Jesus was in town. He was the first man to actually clothe her with his eyes. He was the first man to not use her, but to serve her for her sake. He forgave her sin. He washed her. He made her clean. She's finally found one who truly loves her. And the one who loves her happens to be the Son of God himself. This is something aesthetic that's happened inside of her. You know what that's like when a young man gets his first car. We've talked about this. He gets his first car, and you know, every penny he has, he pours into that car. He washes the car in the driveway. He waxes the car in the driveway. He goes through and gets that expensive stuff that's really just greasy, slimy stuff, and does all of the wheels so every wheel is shiny. He's detailing with a toothpick and a q-tip in the little fine layers where various pieces of his car come together, and then he washes it and waxes it again just because he wants to spend time with this car. He wants to be with it. He wants to pour every cent he gets into it until he meets a girl. And then he wants to spend every waking second with the girl and he wants to spend every penny he's got on the girl. He will go to movies that he finds sappy and boring and romantic and mushy just because he wants to sit next to the girl. Something aesthetic has happened. His heart was captivated by a car and then suddenly it's captivated by this amazing, beautiful woman who's soft and smells nice. And, and, and it's just it's aesthetic. And Jesus is saying, that's what happened to this woman. Simon, he's saying, Something aesthetic has to happen inside of you because right now you are in the presence of the Son of God in all of his compassion, and all of his grace, and it's doing nothing at all for you. And friends, that is a terrifying place to be. But how can you change your heart? How can you change what you find beautiful? How can you change what captivates you? How can you choose what captures your affections? And so Jesus explains... It's a very counterintuitive explanation. Because he says, if you want to learn to love me, if you want to be captivated by me, you first need to experience being loved by me. You see, we reverse what Jesus is saying when he tells this little parable. We, we hear Jesus saying to the woman, Okay, woman, you're a sinful woman, but you have loved me, and therefore I henceforth forgive you because of your love. But that's not what he's saying. He, he explains what he's saying by the parable. He's actually saying just the opposite. He is looking at this woman and he's looking at Simon and he's saying, I can tell which one of you has been forgiven much. I can tell which one of you has had faith to save you. I can tell because the one of, one of you has been forgiven much and therefore loves me much. And one of you has been forgiven very, very little and therefore loves me very little. And so he tells this, this parable of, a, of, of two men who both owe a whole lot of money. One of them, it's the equivalent of like $10,000. You could buy a seven-year-old, a six-year-old Mini Cooper with all the bells and whistles for $10,000. That's a lot of money, and there's no way he can pay it back very easily. He's going to have to work long and hard to pay down that debt. And the other one owes him the equivalent of about $500 billion dollars. And there's no way he's ever going to be be able to pay back $500 billion. You know, you just, the the credit card company should not have given you that high of a limit. But it's there, and they're coming after him, and there's nothing you can do because they're going to keep calling you, they're going to get your cell phone, they're going to keep coming after you, and eventually they're going to jail you for $500 billion. You can't do that. There's there's no friend that you have that you can call to get some leverage on five hundred million billion. $500 billion, it's beat. can't do it and so jesus says the guy says all right i'm just going to cancel both your debts now the question is which one of them is going to love me more when i cancel their debts the one who owed ten thousand dollars or the 500 billion dollar guy well obviously the guy who owed 500 billion dollars because there was no way he could have gotten out of that hole he just saved his life He's going to have affection for you. He's going to want to serve you and love you. It's the counterintuitive economics of the kingdom of God. Jesus is making an incredible statement here. He's saying, you know, if you want to love me, you have to experience being forgiven a whole lot more. You need to fail miserably and be accepted, and let my grace wash over you. And as you bring all that shame, and you name it before me, as you're forgiven of so much, it's going to sink in. It's going to change you. It's going to captivate you. It's going to capture your heart. It's the opposite of how we think change happens. You know, if you can imagine, uh, every one of us has a spiritual toolbox. And in your spiritual toolbox are all of the resources, all of the tools that you're going to use to make yourself a better person. Uh, to help you actually love God in practice. And so you you can imagine Jesus saying, hand over your toolbox. Okay, Jesus, here's my spiritual toolbox. And he goes in and he pulls out the hammer. And the hammer has a, a label on it. It's called guilt manipulation. And he takes your hammer and he says, you know, there's a lot you can get done with guilt manipulation. This hammer, you can hammer away at your soul and you will get outward results because you will feel so guilty for doing the wrong thing. But you know what? You don't need the hammer. And he throws your hammer away. And so then he reaches in and he grabs your Phillips head screwdriver. You do a lot with a Phillips head screwdriver. And he says, you know, that you don't need this one either. And it says shame on it. There's all sorts of stuff you can get yourself to do because you're trying to avoid feeling shame. But he says, you know what? I don't really want you motivated by shame. And so I'm going to throw away your screwdriver. And so you don't have a screwdriver. You're like, well, what on? well, at least you got your wrench. But he reaches in and he looks at your wrench. And it's called fear of punishment. And he, he says, you know what? I'm going to cross for you and, and I'm going to carry all of your debt, all of your shame, all of your guilt, and all of the consequences to the cross for you. And I'm going to pay those eternally for you so that God the Father will never, ever punish you because I have already been punished and there is no double jeopardy with God. Paid in full. So you don't need your wrench anymore. He throws out your wrench. And then you look in and we, at least you got some sandpaper. He says, woohoo. He looks on the back of the sandpaper, and you know what grit this sandpaper is? It's what people will think of you, grit. And he says, you know what, I don't want you motivated and trying to change yourself and trying to love me out of, out of fear of what other people are going to think. So he gets rid of your sandpaper. And then you've got no tools in your toolbox. He says, Jesus, what am I supposed to do to actually change? I want to learn to love you. I don't really love you very much right now, Jesus. I want to love you, but I don't. And you've taken away all the tools I was relying on to actually learn to love you. Jesus, what am I supposed to do? He says, look in the box. You look in your toolbox. And, and there's a sticker that was there all along on the bottom that you never could see because all these tools were in the way. And the sticker, it it, it says G-R-A-C-E, grace. Five letters. It says you need grace. Grace will change you. Grace will make you willing to suffer and will make you willing to do what you don't feel like doing out of love and loyalty to your Savior. The path to loving God is by being loved by God, living loved by God. By God. That's going to be our theme the next 12 weeks as we talk about. We're going to talk about loving different kinds of people, but every single sermon is really going to be about being loved by God as the thing that's going to give you the power, that radical gospel that's going to give you the power to actually learn to love the unlovable. You think about all those genealogies in the Bible. You know, God is incredibly personal you, you skip over them when you read, you know, because it's like Nahum begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat you know, you know, uh, a theothar, and Athetaar, you know, begat Oran, and Oran begat Daniel, and you just think, oh my gosh, I'm just going to skip this. Find a chapter where actually there's some plot, and you think, why are those in there? Well, they're in there because God knows His people individually by name. He doesn't just have a collection of marbles that all look alike. Every marble is completely different and he gets each one out and he names each one and he looks at it and he marvels at it. Only they're not marbles, they're people, his children, those who believe in Jesus, his son, are therefore adopted into his family. All those genealogies are there because God actually loves you personally if you belong to him. There's a a song Nathan Partain put out this year, You Are Not My People. And it's God speaking, and he goes through the story of God and us in the Bible. God is speaking. You hid from me, and so I called you. And then you accused me, and so I blessed you. Your heart was cold, so jealous was I for you. You had contempt for me, and so I held you. You closed your ears, and so I displayed for you. You shut your eyes, and so I fed you. You fought, but I was patient to wait for you. You yelled and you cried, and so I clothed you. You were not my people, but I have called you my own. You had been so hateful, but I've brought you into my home. Your mind was bent, and so I sang for you. Your feet were bound, and so I untied you. you. You could not speak, and so I taught you to. You were so scared, but I gently drew you. You, your own hands, shed my blood, and so I have made you mine. You illegitimate, uncovered, I've made you my child. You spit on me even as I kissed you. You struck my face while I bathed you. You raged and so I poured my spirit all over you. You crucified me and I let you. So great is the love of God for you individually and as his people, his total loyalty, his compassion, not in spite of your sin, but because of it, he's drawn to you to redeem you and to love you because you in your sin are needing loving. He knows you by name. Are you letting that sink in? Are you receiving that as reality? Is it doing anything inside of you? Because this is Jesus who is beautiful in his love for the lost, his love for sinners like me, like you. I want you to imagine a church of people like this woman in Luke 7. Imagine a church of people who have have had affairs and wrecked their marriages, people who have cheated on their taxes, who've lived with bitterness, people who have lived with resentments and anger in their heart, people who have had abortions, or been filled with self-righteousness and judgment of people who have had abortions, people who have been to jail people who have been accused of all sorts of things, rightly or wrongly, people with addictions to gambling or addictions to pornography or addictions to alcohol or addictions to drugs, people who have failed God and failed humanity and have known what it's like to carry about that shame. Imagine a church of people like that when Jesus comes and he loves them, every one of them covers their shame, washes them of their sin, and fills them with his blessing as deeply loved children. Imagine when he makes you clean and forgives you for all of it, knowing you're going to fail him again, knowing you're going to stumble and fall, still saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you because I love you. Imagine the smile on the father's face as he looks upon a church like that. Imagine what it would be, friends. I know your stories. I've heard so many of your stories. Friends, you are that church. There is not a one of you in here who doesn't have some big shameful thing that you've brought to Jesus. And I see it in your countenance when that grace is washed over you and you've realized that he really does love you. You say, "Greg, my heart's still hard as ice. Where do I start?" Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You want to love God, you've got to be loved by God. And the love of God is a living man, alive, risen, and ascended to the right hand of the Father and revealing himself through his word here and now. You want to know him. Friends, look at Jesus. A couple years ago, I shared the story of, of uh, uh, Festo Covingere. He was the Anglican bishop in Uganda from 1972 until his death in 1988. And he was a man who suffered greatly under the dictatorship of Idi Amin. He is a man who was driven into exile for that. He wrote a book called I Love Idi Amin uh, and, and sent it to the dictator who had made his life a living hell because he had learned... To love and he wrote a book called Revolutionary Love and in it uh, Kavinjare tells his own story beginning when he was just a 19-year-old kid. He had gone away to college to get his teaching certificate and at age 19 he's returning to his hometown in Uganda and he tells this story. He says, what a shock I had when I reached home. My eagerness to arrive had made the dust and bumps of the long journey seem like nothing. We've got a picture of him get that picture. Great guy. says. So I was definitely unprepared for the situation I found as the old lorry I was riding in pulled into Rukongiri, my hometown in western Uganda. It was 1939. I was 19 years old, coming home with the ink barely dry on my teacher's certificate. I had been given my first teaching position in the very boys' school I had attended. And that pleased me. At least it would be a start and I would have money in my pocket. The first ugly surprise came when the truck rounded the marketplace. A crowd had gathered around some people who were singing church songs right out in public. Imagine hearing this floating over the fruit and vegetables down at the cross where my Savior died. To me, it was sheer fanaticism. The headmaster was waiting for me in town, which was gratifying. Some of my relatives were there also. My favorite niece threw her arms around me and cried, Uncle Festo, welcome home. I love Jesus now. Do you? (coughs) I grunted something and changed the subject. As an agnostic, I was quite offended. As the days passed, the situation proved worse than I had thought. People, both young and old, were caught up in a sort of religious frenzy, doing ridiculous things. Many of them had been good churchgoers for years, but this was something quite new. They would talk about Jesus in all sorts of places, and you never knew where they might burst out into song. It was infectious, spreading like a disease. We enlightened people were angry. My mother's brother, the senior chief of our district, was appropriately tough against such things. He was a good chief selected by the british government as the most progressive of the sons of the former king my grandfather now my uncle said this this new kind of religion is dangerous it invades your privacy you have nothing left there were other unsettling aspects of it for the chief to consider these women who were saved no longer covered their faces before men and they spoke out in public as if they were set free from the ancient traditions Even worse, the customary distinction between our tribe and the local Iru tribe was ignored by these extremists. They actually ate meals together, breaking the food taboos of hundreds of years, and in many other ways, they ignored the feelings of the revered ancestors, thereby bringing the danger of calamity upon the whole land. My uncle, the chief, felt he had to take action, and so he told his retainers that they could beat up the ones who spoke of being saved. Some of them were thrashed quite severely. But beating didn't change them. And sometimes the results were the reverse of what my uncle intended. A court official would beat up a man because he talked about Jesus publicly. But when the beater went home, he couldn't sleep. And by morning, he was weeping and went off to join the fanatics. Exasperated, my uncle changed his order. Don't beat them. That is dangerous. You might become like them. I was having difficulties of my own, he writes. The school where I taught was a mission school, and I was expected to attend the local church. That wouldn't have been hard, except that nearly everyone who was asked to speak or preach was one of these fanatics. What they said uh, was always dangerously personal. We were constantly bombarded with talk of the cross. It was oppressive. Actually, I knew what it was to be an angry young man who was tired and lonely and finding life increasingly unmanageable and confusing. I was running as far away as I could from this Jesus they talked about, determined never to surrender to him or to anyone except myself. I was the kind of agnostic who is not interested in trying to prove whether there's a God or not. I ignored God and eventually said he wasn't there. I wished to be free. Sitting with my uncle, the chief, I could thoroughly appreciate his dilemma. However, neither of us could say that these people were total frauds. Take the matter matter of of cattle. We were a cattle people. To my tribe, cows were what made life worth living. By the time I was three years old, I knew the name of every one of my father's 120 cows, bulls, and calves. Some men I knew thought more of their cattle than of their own children. So there were many things that happened that were incredible. For instance... One day, the chief was holding court with his elders and they were listening to his wisdom when a man arrived who was well known to be a pagan and very wealthy with cattle. His servants had eight fine cows with them that they were driving along and all of the elders looked to to admire appreciatively these cows. The cattle baron greeted everyone and then he said, Your honor, I have come for a purpose. The chief answered, Well, fine. What are these cows for? Sir, Sir, They are yours, I have brought them back to you. What do you mean they are mine? Well, sir, when I was looking after your cattle, I stole four of them, and I told you we had been raided. These four are now eight, and I have brought them to you. Who discovered this theft? Jesus did, sir. He has given me peace and told me to bring them. There was dead silence and no laugh. It was quite a shock. My uncle could see that this man was rejoicing. And everyone knew that what he had just done was impossible for a man from our tribe. I was hating God because the awareness of him embarrassed me continually. And though I pushed them back, my own sins were dark against me and threatening Guilt pursued me like a hunting dog after its prey. I was a man ill at ease, young but fragmented inside. I was running headlong into self-destruction. At the age of 19, I was already considering ending my life. It was not because I didn't have health or work or party friends. It was because the things I did lacked meaning. There was a hollowness inside and life seemed lonely and undependable. And there was a haunting sense of uncertainty about me. Perhaps what happened... Then was because I had come to the end of hope. And I was looking at suicide. One Sunday as I sat in a church service, I got up and I went outside absolutely in a rage. I spent that day drinking hard at my uncle's place. And late that afternoon, I was cycling home, a little bit wobbly, when I saw a good friend of mine riding his bicycle toward me on the dusty road. Which, and he had a look on his face as if he were Flying. He was a teacher like me, and I knew very well that he didn't ordinarily have a glow on his face. I was surprised. My friend pulled up beside me, and he said breathlessly, Festo, three hours ago, Jesus became a living reality to me. I know my sins are forgiven. He had never before spoken with any enthusiasm about Jesus. And then with complete sincerity, he said, Please, I want you to forgive me, friend. And then he named three specific things for which he wanted forgiveness related to some questionable things we had done together. I am sorry, Festo. I'll no longer live like that. Jesus has given me something better. Off he went, whistling exuberantly, leaving me with my mouth open there on the road if only he had stayed with me to argue, but he did not. So when I reached my room, I knelt by my bed, struggling for words to the one in whom I no longer believed. And finally, I cried, God, if you happen to be there, as my friend says, I am miserable. If you can do anything for me, then please do it now. If I'm not too far gone, help me. Then what happened in that room? Heaven opened. In front of me was Jesus. He was there, real and crucified for me. His broken body was hanging on the cross. And suddenly I knew that it was my badness that had done this to the king of life. And it shook me in tears. I thought I was going to hell. If he had said, go, I would not have complained. Somehow I thought that that would be his duty as all the wretchedness of my life came out. But then I saw his eyes of infinite love, which were looking into mine. Could it be he who was clearly saying, this is how much I love you, festo? I shook my head because I knew that couldn't be possible. And I said, no, I am your enemy. I am rebellious. I have been hating your people. How can you love me like that? Even today, I do not know the answer to that question. There is no reason in me for his love. But that day I discovered myself clasped in the father's arms I was tattered and afraid, just like the younger son who went to a far country and then came to the end of himself. But why should the Father, who is holy, come running to hold me to his heart? I was dirty and desperate and had said and done much against him. That love was wholly unexpected, but it filled my room, and I was convinced. He is the only one who loves the unlovable and embraces the unembraceable. And in spite of what I was, I knew I was accepted that I was a son of the Father and that whatever Jesus did on the cross, it was for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the one who appears on your cross, crucified for us, arms outstretched in love and compassion for us, your fallen creatures. We thank you for your love, Lord. I pray for my friends here that you would fill them with the knowledge of your love and that as you wash their feet, you would equip them to live loved and so wash the feet of others. We look to this because we see Jesus full of grace and mercy towards sinners like us. We thank you. We consecrate now the elements on this table that you might put them to good use in proclaiming the good news of Christ our Savior. Amen.